0: his first month in office, May of 1940, Prime Minister Winston Churchill was faced with a probable catastrophe. The German army army had swept across Europe, captured the Belgian army, they were encircling the French, and they were pressing the British into the sea at Dunkirk. Miraculously, the British were able to evacuate 300,000 troops during Operation Dynamo before they were annihilated by the Germans. When news of this incredible rescue reached the British populace, they were euphoric, understandably. But in the mind of Churchill, they were probably a little too excited. Good leaders have the gift of foresight, and Churchill was able to foresee that this Minor victory was just a prelude to an agonizing war. If the British were to maintain their liberty, they had to face reality. The Nazis were sitting at their doorstep preparing to invade, and there was going to be much blood spilt before it was all said and done. So he wrote what is now one of the most famous speeches in the English language. I'll quote part of it here. He says, we must be very careful, I won't try to impersonate him, (laughs) (laughs) although I know you want me to, (laughs) we must be very careful not to assign to this deliverance the attributes of a victory. Wars are not won by evacuations. Our thankfulness at the escape of our army and so many men must not blind us to the fact that what has happened in France and Belgium is a colossal military disaster. The French army has been weakened. The Belgian army has been lost. A large part of those fortified lines upon which so much fate had been reposed is gone. Many valuable mining districts and factories have passed into the enemy's possession. The whole of the channel ports are in his hands with all the tragic consequences that follow from that. And we must expect another blow to be struck almost immediately at us or at France. We are told that Herr Hitler has a plan for invading the British Isles. Once he had given his people a reality check, he was then able to conclude the speech with a rousing call to arms as a response to the threat they faced. Now, this is the famous part that you're almost certainly uh, familiar with. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Well, in John chapter 15, we find ourselves in the middle of what is known as the farewell discourse. It runs from chapter 13 to 17. It's Jesus' last night with his disciples. Jesus knows that a dark hour is coming for him and for his disciples disciples. Judas already is off stage gathering an angry mob to come and arrest Jesus. The cross is merely hours away. And so all of these chapters can be seen as Jesus preparing his disciples for life without him. And Jesus wants his disciples and that includes us to be prepared for the difficulties that can attend Being a Christian. Last week Jesus called his disciples to abide in him. By obeying him. Which meant loving one another. In our text today Jesus wants to warn his disciples. He wants them to to face reality. He says if you abide in me. You can expect hostility from the world. Jesus does not want us to enter into our Christian lives Blind, Like Churchill, Jesus wants his disciples to face reality so that they can respond accordingly. So let's pick up this week in John chapter 15. uh, We're actually going to start at the end of our passage, which is chapter 16, verses 1 to 4. This is Jesus' purpose statement. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember I told them to you. Let's pray Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning for a sobering message. We know that you are the God of peace, the Father of lights, that every good and perfect gift comes from you. And so even the more difficult truths in the scripture are given for the good of your people. So Lord, we ask this morning that you would give us ears to hear. We pray that you would fill our hearts with our joy as we look not unto ourselves, not to our own uh, obedience, not to our own works, but we look to Christ the God-man who lived for us and died on our behalf. Lord, speak to your people. Help us to be bold in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, so we come to our first point this morning, which is the purpose of the warning. In and, and, uh, chapter 15, 18 to 25, Jesus is going to give a warning. Uh, where we see here in chapter 16, 1 to 4, a purpose for giving the warning. Now, he uh, mentions hostility in 18 to 25, and in 16 verses 2 to 3, he gives us examples of what kind of hostility his disciples in the first century could expect. The first thing he says is, you will be thrown out of synagogues. And that was true. Uh, Now, in our day, if you were thrown out of a church, so to speak, you'd have many others to go to, but in that day, to to be removed from the synagogue was essentially to lose your social standing, to lose your religious community, to be cut off from uh, the entire Jewish social and religious apparatus. Uh, This is why when many early disciples turned in faith to Jesus, they became impoverished, even being cut off from their own families. And Jesus goes on, it gets worse than that. You may actually be killed because you're my disciple. And the one who kills you, verse 2, will think he's offering a service to God. Of course, you don't have to read very uh, long past the resurrection accounts in Acts to see that this is exactly what happened with Stephen, the first Christian martyr. He proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ and the resurrection, and as a result, he was accused of blasphemy, and those who thought they were serving God actually kill the servant of God and Stephen, and who was there standing over and giving his approval, but the future apostle Paul. So we see that there is, a, uh, <clears throat> there is a, a passion for persecuting the people of God. And he tells us that they will do these things because even though they think they know the Father, they actually do not. And so he gives us the purpose of the warning. Why is he warning his disciples? Well, the very first long-distance run that I ever did was a 15k down in my hometown. Now, down in Florida, we don't have hills. <laughs> it's very flat. Uh, and so the challenge with this particular race, it was nine miles long, and the last mile and a half actually went over this enormous bridge, which was affectionately titled "The Green Monster." And so a wise runner would understand that at the end of the race, there was this green monster that you had to conquer. And knowing that ahead of the time was the key to persevering through the challenge and finishing the race. Now, every year there were those who didn't prepare for such a thing as a green monster. And so the challenge, uh, even though they were so close to the finish line, there were many who had to give up at that point. Uh, But for those of us who knew it was coming, we trained for this, we prepared for it. And so when the difficulty arrived, which, you know, a bridge to a Floridians, kind of like a mountain. uh, When that difficulty arrived, we were capable of crossing over it. That's kind of what Jesus is saying here about the purpose of his warning. He says in verse 4, I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. He says, I don't want you to be surprised. I don't want it to knock you back. I don't want this to be a cause for you to stumble. I want you to know this is coming. And in verse 1, he says, I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. And you can imagine his disciples in the early church. uh, We are following the Messiah. We We are serving God. We are doing the right thing. Why are we encountering persecution as a result? And Jesus is encouraging them, yes, it feels wrong. But this is exactly what I promised would happen. So let's consider the warning itself as we look to chapter 15, verses 18 to 25. Pick up with me as we read that. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. And so we've come to the warning portion of our text. Jesus stated the purpose of this is to help you persevere through hostility. Jesus wants his disciples to face reality so that they're not surprised. And his message in verses 18 to 21 is essentially this the world will hate you for being my disciples. Now, this statement presupposes a distinction which Jesus has maintained throughout the whole of the gospel. Uh, The distinction between the world and Jesus' disciples. Now, in our day, we resist binary distinctions. We resist any idea that things could be black and white. Uh, But Jesus has no problem making this distinction. Elsewhere, he teaches that there are sheep And there are goats. He teaches that there is wheat. And then there are the tares, the world, and his disciples. Now, as his disciples, we are called to love one another. And Jesus even calls us to love our enemies. Jesus is essentially saying to us, though, don't expect the same treatment in return from the world. He says, if the world hates you, no, it hated me too. How do we know the world hated Jesus? (laughs) They put him on a cross. He says, you're not part of the world. You're different. I chose you out of the world. And by the way, that's kind of what it means to be a Christian. God chose you and he called you to be his ambassador in a world that has rejected him. And because you are waving the Jesus flag, Jesus says the world that hates God will also hate you. Because you were once of the world, but you've now been adopted into the family of God. You once belonged to the kingdom of man, but you are now a proud citizen of the eternal kingdom of God. And so Jesus tells us again in verse 20, Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. Now, when he first said that in chapter 13, he was giving his disciples an example of humble, self-sacrificial service to one another in washing their feet. Here he's using the same principle to, to warn us that the proclamation of the gospel produces division. Those who rejected me, he says, will reject and persecute you. Those who accepted my words will accept your words. Now, if you've ever shared the gospel, you know this to be true. We've, we've been talking about this in our uh, community groups, uh, crossing the pain line. Uh, you know that uh, for those who accept and receive the message of Jesus Christ, there's no better news in the whole world. There's incredible joy for the one sharing and for the one receiving God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross as my substitutionary sacrifice. He died in my place. He paid the penalty for my sins. Because of Jesus, though I deserved hell, I got God in eternity instead. And he's filled me with his spirit. There's no better life-giving message than that. Entire forgiveness of all of your sins through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, those who accept this message do so with heavenly joy. It's a wonderful, wonderful truth. But to those who are perishing, those who reject this message also reject the messengers who bring the message. Those who don't believe the message find it unbelievably offensive, exclusive, narrow-minded, and bigoted. Jesus just doesn't want us to be surprised about it. He's saying if you encounter hostility for being a Christian and for sharing this truth of the gospel with others, don't be shocked and know that you haven't done wrong. Consider what he says in Matthew chapter 5. We have a slide for this. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this. Uh, He says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, On my account. He says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, this proclamation of the Christian truth does create division, as it did for Jesus. And yet, it's not just the proclamation of the message that creates this tension. Jesus says there is a deeper root cause. Look at verse 21. He says, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they don't know him who sent me. He's saying that the reason that there is hostility between the world and the people of God is because of the name of Jesus. That because you belong to God, those who hate God will hate you. Now, as we transition to verses 22 to 25, this brings us to an interesting reality. Remember that, Remember the context of Jesus' words here. Jesus is speaking to his disciples in the first century in Judea. Oftentimes in the church, when we think of the world, we think about the people around us who don't know Jesus. Uh, those who have never heard or those who have rejected Jesus. And, and that's an accurate way to think about the world. But the surprising thing, when we come to the Gospels Is what? What's the heartbreaking reality here? Who, if the disciples are being thrown out of the synagogues, who is Jesus saying is the world? It's the people of God. It's Jesus' own brothers and sisters, the descendants of Abraham, the Jews. Somehow the people of God have become the world those among them who rejected Christ. And the natural question, of course, is how did the people of God become the world? How did Jesus' own brothers and sisters come to reject their own promised Messiah, the King of Israel? Well, that question is beyond the scope of our study today, but I'll refer you to my sermon on John chapter 12, verse 37 to 50. Uh, And I'll also refer you to your Old Testament to see the history of this development. So what does Jesus want us to see Here in verses 22 to 25. He wants us to see that the world which hates his disciples is without excuse. That though his disciples are going to be thrown out of synagogues, beaten and even killed as an offering to God, or so they thought, God is watching. And God will hold the world accountable. And the generation, Jesus says here, which killed Jesus and persecuted his disciples is particularly guilty. And he gives two reasons why. In verse 22, he says, because I've come and I've spoken to them. And in verse 24, he says, because I've done works among them, which no one else has. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, uh, basically, I've come and I have revealed God to them. Do you remember when uh, they were asking Jesus to reveal the Father? And he says, Thomas, if you've seen me, You've seen God the Father. Jesus is God in the flesh. God who took on humanity, as we said in the catechism question. So for three years, Jesus has preached the good news. He's validated his message with miraculous signs and wonders, and they still largely reject him and hate him and put him on a cross. And so it gets even more interesting. Jesus What does he mean when he says, if I hadn't done things, they wouldn't be guilty of sin. If I hadn't spoken to them, if I hadn't performed these works. Well, we know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So he's he's not saying there would be no judgment whatsoever. What he's saying here is that it is a greater sin, perhaps the greatest sin, to behold the Son of God in the flesh. And to reject him. The one who spoke the word of God to you and performed works before you. He makes a similar argument in Matthew chapter 11. We have a slide for this as well. He began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. That's a bold statement. Have Have you think about what Jesus is saying here? Sodom was the ultimate example of wickedness in the Old Testament. And he's saying that on the day of judgment, Sodom will face lesser judgment than his own brothers and sisters who beheld the Messiah and who rejected him. Because their sin is not as severe. These people have looked God in the face and hated him. He's saying so they are without excuse. So Jesus is telling us, expect rejection, expect hostility, but know that whatever you face, I've already faced. And God is watching over all of his beloved children and keeping track of everything. Now, as I mentioned, Jesus, as a leader, is seeking to care for his own disciples and encourage them as he sends them out to bring good news to a world which largely hates them. The last bit of encouragement he gives is to remind them that despite the persecution that they face, this persecution is not a hiccup in God's plan. If you go share the gospel and you encounter resistance, that's not an accident in the plan of God, but rather that is the design. That just as Christ would accomplish great things through his suffering, so God has called us to do the same. Jesus says this in verse 25. Look at it. But the, the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Now, this word law in the New Testament can be used in a variety of ways. It can refer to the Levitical law. It can refer to the entire Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. Or it can refer to the entire Old Testament. It all depends on context. And in this particular situation, Jesus is referring to the Psalms. There are various places in the Psalms where David is presented as one who suffers without cause, suffers unjustly. Well, dear friends, Jesus is the greater son of David. And David is there to point us forward to the greater son of David. Jesus is the greater king of Israel. And just as David was unjustly persecuted as he sought to obey God and establish God's kingdom, so Jesus, as a truly sinless person, was unjustly persecuted as he sought to obey God and establish his eternal kingdom. But it wasn't a hiccup. It was the plan. God, in his infinite wisdom, used the suffering of both men to accomplish his divine purposes. Yes, Jesus was rejected and hated by the world, but how else were you going to be saved except that he go to the cross? It was the sacrifice of Christ at the hands of sinners that made our redemption possible. And dear friends, God in His infinite wisdom uses the persecution against you to accomplish His plan of redemption. And I would love, as a history nerd, to take you through church history and various eras to see how this has been accomplished over and over. You could consider just the early church. And you would not expect the early church to have become the thriving institution that it was. Every single one of the 11 disciples that are left with Jesus, save John, would be martyred for their faith. That's not exactly uh, a recipe for creating a worldwide religion. After Stephen testified to Jesus in Acts 8, this, this massive persecution breaks out. And so the the leaders in Judea are persecuting all these Christians, including Saul, who's going from house to house, killing and imprisoning Christians. You wouldn't expect this to be an environment in which the church would thrive. But actually, that's exactly how God causes the church to thrive. It says in Acts 8 that the disciples were scattered all through Judea and Samaria. And so the gospel expanded and spread all through Judea and Samaria. Throughout the first three centuries of the church, whether it was through the leaders in Jerusalem or through the pagan leadership in the Roman world, every single time the church was persecuted, it exploded. And more and more people became Christians. Uh, Ultimately, over three centuries, the Christian church conquered the Roman Empire, not through expansion or force, but Christianity always conquers through love. An unbelieving world watched as Christians refused to deny Christ their Lord and Savior even at the cost of their own life. And they saw forgiveness among the body. And they saw how they forgave even their captors. And they saw how they loved one another as Jesus had called them to do. And long before Christianity became the state religion of the Roman Empire, Christianity was already the majority religion in the empire. It had conquered all of the pagan gods. Guys, you have to see, God uses the suffering of his church to build his church and accomplish redemption. We could consider this in the era of the Reformation. We could consider the Puritans, the spread of Christianity in Africa, and so much more. Even today, this will probably surprise you. Do you know where the church is exploding most in the world right now? That's one of them. So, uh, under communist China... In the last 40 years, Christians in China have gone from 1 million to 100 million. And that's Boston University giving that source. You know where else? You know what what the fastest shrinking religion is in Iran? It's Islam. Do You know what the fastest growing religion is in Iran? It's Christianity. It is exploding in the land of Cyrus. Do you think the governments of Iran and China are excitedly trying to make their populations Christian? They are doing the opposite. They are imprisoning pastors. They are intimidating Christians, even killing them sometimes. And in so doing, they accomplish the plan of God to redeem sinners to himself also a helpful reminder that Christianity is not a white man's religion. Jesus is king over all nations and he calls people from all nations to himself. So be encouraged if you face hostility in the world for belonging to Jesus. It means that God is at work through you for your good and his glory. He is using your suffering to bring sinners to himself. So Jesus wants us to expect to encounter hostility. He warned us ahead of time so that when we face it, we won't shrink back or fall away, but we'll have even greater faith in him because he warned us it would happen. He persevered in obedience to God through suffering and even death on a cross, and he calls us to persevere in obedience also. Now, just as Churchill, after facing reality, roused his country to action, Jesus does so here as well. How does he call his disciples to action as we face the reality of hatred from the world? We'll pick up in verses 26 and 27. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. When facing the reality of opposition to Jesus Christ, we basically have two options. We can embrace our calling. We can take that bridge because we've prepared for it. Or we can capitulate close to the finish line to a world that just wants to keep You quiet. Jesus, again, is calling us to arms, not with actual weapons, but with the armor of God and the gospel of truth. His marching orders are simple. Go, therefore, into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And so he commands his disciples to testify concerning Jesus. He says, those of you who are with me from the beginning will uh, bear witness about me. And by the way, I'm also going to empower you with the Holy Spirit, who will also testify about me when I send him to you. So what is our response then when we face persecution? Is it to shrink back? Of course not. It is to advance in the power of the Spirit, to proclaim the good news that Jesus is King, that he demands everyone to bow the knee to him and to those who do so willingly now he gives the gift of himself now and forever eternal life, forgiveness of sins adoption into the family of God but this is the stumbling block of the gospel this is the mission of the church and this is why we are persecuted because we belong to the king of kings and the lord of lords Well, let's close today with just a few applications When Jesus talks about hatred from the world and the persecution which comes with that, it can be difficult for us in the West to always understand that. I saw a comedian who was making fun of his sister-in-law for posting a verse about persecution in her palatial mansion in Franklin, Tennessee, um, which I thought was funny. Uh, Christianity has long enjoyed a privileged position In the West, and in our country, specifically. We have thankfully never had a state church, but until recently we have been a nation of Christians. And one of the benefits of that was that we were free to practice our faith without fear of violent persecution. We've long enjoyed a privileged status. Generally speaking, for most of our history as a nation, the moral teaching of Christ, even among those who rejected Christ, was nevertheless the accepted moral teaching of our land. To be a Christian publicly was almost always seen as a positive thing. Over the last few decades, that has shifted. Sometime in the 90s, we shifted from it being viewed positively to it being viewed neutrally. It was neither a benefit nor uh, a negative for Christians. Sometime in the late 2000s, early 2010s, that shifted from neutral to negative. Now, as we live in the negative world, being a Christian publicly no longer helps you in any way in the eyes of the general public or the broader culture. It probably hurts you. If you adhere to Christian morality, uh, you are now seen as exclusive, bigoted, backward, and unloving. Now, we don't know if these trends will continue as they have. There have been revivals in the past, and there could be in our future. But if these trends continue, then it means that it's only going to become more difficult for you to publicly own your faith as a Christian, even here in the U.S. The hatred of the world will likely grow more intense as our country moves away from God. And so our first application is, yes, we can look back at the early disciples and recognize that their persecution was far more intense than anything we face here. But we're also reminded that just because we haven't experienced Persecution like that in our nation doesn't mean that we won't. Our second application is a call to boldness in the face of that persecution. There's long been a temptation among some evangelicals to seek the acceptance of the world. You know, nobody wants to be hated, we want to be respected, even by those who aren't Christians. And so many, convinced that they could have their cake and eat it too, actually sought the applause of the world while still claiming Christ. And they said things, well, I'm not, I'm not that kind of Christian, those narrow-minded ones. I'm not, I'm not like them. And in the name of updating our faith for a modern age, they removed everything that was offensive about our faith to the modern age, which, by the way, is an ongoing, never-ending process. They took out the exclusivity of Christ for salvation, the reality of sin in every human heart, the impending judgment of God, the reality of hell, the dignity of human life, even unborn life, all of the supernatural miracles, chiefly the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. And what starts with, well, I'm not that kind of Christian soon becomes, well, I'm not a Christian. Now, listen, as Christians, we don't want to be unnecessarily offensive. The gospel is offensive enough. But we are promised that the world will hate us if we identify with Christ. And we just need to embrace that we cannot ingratiate ourselves to the world. Paul says it in 2 Timothy 3. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be paraded through the streets as heroes. It's right there. No, he says they will be persecuted. So like a good soldier, embrace the truth that God's enemies will hate God's people. It can't be avoided. But trust God as you obey God. Return good for evil and always act in love. Third application before we close. If you're going to be persecuted... Be sure it is because you are a Christian and not because you're a jerk (laughs) or a fool. If you are an unethical person and you manipulate others or you use others to accomplish your own purposes and you hurt other people in word and deed and you experience blowback, don't say, oh, it's because I'm a Christian. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Don't claim Christ you're not persecuted for being a Christian. Dear friends, when Churchill made his speech, things looked really bleak. Sometimes we don't always remember this, but the outcome when he made that speech was not guaranteed. Things did not look promising. The US was refusing to get involved and wouldn't for another year and a half. Britain stood alone And defeat or surrender was still very much a possibility. As we look back on the speech, we do so with the benefit of hindsight. We know that the allies ultimately win. You can imagine how much bolder they might have been if they knew that they were going to win. Dear friends, Jesus is saying, you're going to face hostility in this world and it's through facing that that god builds his kingdom in our world. But you have what the british didn't. The knowledge that you are on the winning side. Yes, things might be getting harder for professing christians in our country, but you know who wins in the end. It may not always look like it, but god wins. Jesus reigns, let the nations be glad. As christians we're not here to negotiate our own surrender. We're not even considering surrender. But as the author of Hebrews writes, we're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are of those who have faith and so preserve their souls. Jesus has called us as his ambassadors on earth to proclaim the good news and not to be surprised when it makes people angry. Let's pray